Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. As you can tell, it's going to be a special service. Here in a little bit, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which really is a demonstration of God's grace. Second chances, new day, new mercies. No theology can be defined as the study of God, who He is, what He does. Now, the different doctrines or teachings that comprise theology basically consist of statements about God's character and His work in human history. We don't serve what I would call an absentee landlord. He created the world, He sustains the world, but He's actively involved in his creation. Now the purpose of theological study is to increase our knowledge of God. Theo meaning God, ology means study of. And we do that to increase our knowledge of God. Now the goal of increasing our knowledge of God is to live lives that are characterized by growth and obedience to God's revealed will. One of those doctrines or teachings that are essential to Christianity is grace. Because it's grace that provides second chances. New day, new mercies. Brother Mike has alluded to this already. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that his mercies are new every morning and that his loving kindness never ceases. Max Locato, writer, author, speaker, preacher, in an interview with Christian Bible Studies said this about grace. Quote, grace is the voice that calls us to change. And then gives us the power to pull it off. When grace happens, we receive not a nice compliment from God, but a new heart. End of quote. Turn your attention to our text, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. It has been revealed. Now God's grace is based solely on his love. And our total inability to meet God's standards. It's a gift that we don't deserve and that we can never earn. Without it, grace that is, there would be no salvation because it is foundational to salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that none of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I cannot boast before you today that I'm a pastor, preacher. It's all based on the grace of God that I never deserved and I can never earn. It's a free gift. Free gift. Think about that for a minute. God doesn't owe you and I a single thing, but yet, in His infinite love, Mercy, His grace, He reaches out to every person on earth every single 
day. See, the grace of God in our text says it has appeared, it's been revealed. And it's been revealed in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Now this appearing is not limited to his birth, but his entire life. It includes his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation that resulted in, look back at verse 11, bringing salvation to all men or for all people. Now, this not, does not imply universalism that all people are saved. The point being made here is salvation is made possible to everybody. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what color your skin you are. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter your economic standing. All that does not matter because it's made available to everybody. We call this place a sanctuary, a safe place. You know why? Because all of the visions that the world puts on us out there cease to exist here. There's only one person that's high lifted up here, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And at the foot of the cross, we're all on equal footing. Now, God's grace is not limited to only justification. Well, speaking of justification, that time when you gave your life to Christ, you confessed your sins and repented of them. In that moment, his blood covers your sins, and now you are justified in the eyes of God. But grace does not stop there. It continues to operate in the sanctification process. In other words, sanctification, that's growing in our faith. Really, the best way to define it is becoming more like Christ every single day. Now, I'm guilty of this too. We measure a lot of times church growth by numbers. The best way to discern if a church is really growing, does the church as a whole look more Christ-like today than it did last year or last month or even last week? It's all about changing and becoming more and more like Christ. Grace is active and powerful. It sustains in time of need. It produces thanksgiving and glory to God, affects our conversations, and it enables us to live holy and godly lives, as it says down in verse 12. What was last Sunday? Oh, come on, that's not a hard question. What was last Sunday? New Year's Eve, and what do we do on New Year's Eve? If you say party, I'm going to get, come on. Well, I guess it kind of depends on the kind of party you had. We make what? New Year's resolutions. And a lot of times those resolutions are, I'm going to eat a little less, maybe exercise some more, which sometimes that doesn't go past the first week of the new year. But have you ever considered about making a resolution about your faith, about strengthening your faith through grace in the coming year? What's that look like? Spending more time in prayer and searching the scriptures. That, of course, implies reading, hearing, and meditating on them. One of my things I do for prep, well, probably will start this afternoon or tomorrow morning, is I looked at the next text, and I just read it over and over and over again. Let it savor in my mind and in my heart. Think about it. Now, I also have my private devotional time that is separate from sermon preparation. I have to have that for my own personal growth. But that's what I would encourage you to do. As you read through the Bible, go through devotion, whatever you're doing, before you answer any questions, just sit back and think about it and say, God, speak 
to me. And you'll be amazed. He may not say anything then and there, but he will answer you and speak to your hearts. Look back in verse 12. This grace of God instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires or passions. Now, instructing us, or some translations will render that teaching us, is seldom a painless, a painless process as it involves correction of our behavior, which by nature is hostile to God. Do you like getting uh, corrected for misbehavior? And when you're growing up, you, if you did something wrong, did you look forward to seeing dad or mom? You know, in our house, Tammy was doing this a lot. You just wait till your father gets home. Same, same thing is true with, with God. He corrects us, and a lot of times that's not an easy process to go through. Why does he do that? Because he's your father. He loves you. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says he doesn't correct you. You're not really a child of his. He only corrects those that belong to him. He corrects you because he loves you. He knows what's best for you, and he wants you to grow into more and more like Christ. If he didn't care, he wouldn't correct you. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, that tug you feel in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Why is he doing that? Not to make you feel shameful or regretful. He wants you to receive the offer of salvation so that you can be with him forever in heaven. He doesn't want anyone to perish, the scripture says, but to all come to repentance. God's grace teaches us, look what it says in the text, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. There must be a conscious, willful, deliberate denial of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to true godliness. There must also be a rejection of desire for things, pleasures, and values that are derived from this present world system, which is hostile to God. Before I read the next text, let me tell you something. We're not only living in a post-Christian society and world we're living in a place where it's becoming more hostile to God. It's becoming more open. You can see that when you watch the news and what's going on, even here in our own country. When I first got into ministry, there was uh, the Southern Baptist came through the conservative research that's going back to the work of God, the word of God, excuse me. And then there was like these worship wars. Should we sing hymns or more conditional? But what I see happening today is even more dire than that. They're talking about who Christ is. There are people who stand in the pulpit and say Christ didn't live a perfect life, that he wasn't born of a virgin. If you subscribe to that, Christianity falls. But yet people are amening that and believing that. The first John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Verse 12 also tells us the grace of God teaches us to live sensibly or self-controlled, righteously or upright and godly in the present age. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Righteously or upright denotes conduct that cannot be condemned. Godly or godly lives denotes lives that are pleasing to God. See, the Christian life, a better way of putting it, the Christian worldview, our values, 
our morals and what we believe must be demonstrated in an evil world that is hostile to God. Not everyone's going to applaud you for being a Christian. Not everyone's going to agree with you. In fact, there are people who are outright hostile to you. But we are called to be his witnesses. How can I turn my back on the gospel of Jesus Christ when it literally saved me from the pit of hell and saved my life? He didn't turn his back on me, did he? For the first 30 years of my life, I shook my fist in the face of God and cursed his very name, but he didn't give up. He kept sending people my way. So eventually, I came with a hard conviction, gave my life to Christ, but I wasn't prepared for the next step to be a preacher. Do what? Do you re- yeah, I know who you are, Tim. Don't worry about it. One thing I've say time and time again, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And this present age, the mention of that presupposes another future age for which we hope for with assurance and perseverance. And it's been inaugurated in the work of Christ during his incarnation, and it will be fully realized by every believer at his second coming. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, dear beloved, this is not all there is. This is not it. There's more to it. This is more like a dress rehearsal, if you will. I'm 55 years old. Maybe be 50. So I don't know how long longer I have on this earth, but what is 55 years, 60 years, 70 years compared to all eternity? So when you see things going wrong in our world and you get concerned and worried, we should pray and we should be concerned. But remember one thing. This world is not our home and praise God it's not. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Notice. It says the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of That word, thee, is a definite article. And God and Savior, those two words, are governed by that definite article in grammar. So what I'm telling you is that this text applies the title of God to Jesus Christ. There's a lot of biblical scholars, I'm not going to bore you, I read like four or five articles on this, them arguing, well, blah, blah. But this text alone does not determine the deity of Christ. For example, his supernatural birth, his sinless life, his fulfillment of Messianic Old Testament prophecy, his demonstration over an authority over nature, disease, demons, and death, his claim upon the attributes and prerogatives of God, including forgiveness of sins and judging sinners, and his resurrection from the dead, and his heavenly exaltation. These are all told to us through the gospel, the eyewitnesses who saw these things. They wrote down what they saw. Now even the, the gospel writers will tell you, we didn't write everything down that he ever said or did because if we did, the books would be large, a lot of volumes. But certain things are written down under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Why? Certain things so that we would read and believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. He was fully man and fully God. 
Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This verse tells us the twofold purpose of Jesus' self-sacrifice, redemption and purification. Redemption is expressed in terms of a ransom payment. This ransom payment delivers humanity from every lawless deed. Deliverance from both sin and the power of sin. Does the old hymn, Oh, bless the thought, my, sale, my sins in part, my sins not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. He paid the ransom for you and I. See, sin has consequences. Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. That'd be real sad if it ended right there. But the gift of God, it says, is eternal life. See, sin has to be answered for. So you have a you have a, a decision to make. Either I can put my faith and trust in Jesus, who he is, confess my sins, give my life over to him. Be guided by his word and his Holy Spirit, or live the way I want, then I'll pay for the sin at the end. But one way or the other, sin has to be accounted for. But Jesus, because he loves you, paid that payment for you. You couldn't pay it because we've all sinned, but he lived a perfect life. Perfect life. He didn't deserve to die that way, but he did. He did that for you and for me. And just as redemption and cleansing made Israel a treasured possession, so by his sacrifice he purchased those for whom he died with the result that they are a people that are his very own. I just told the kids, because of your faith in Christ, you are a child of God. We talk a lot about miracles, and if you watch TV early in the morning or really late at night, you see a lot of these commercials about these miracles and this, that, and the other. Let me tell you, the greatest miracle that, that we can see is when someone who hasn't given their life to Christ, how's the Bible describe them? Dead in their trespasses and sins, an enemy of God. But in that moment, when they turn to Christ and cry out to Him, in that moment, they now become a child of God, a friend of God, part of God's family, and their whole life changes. It's amazing to see the power of the gospel working in someone's life. Now, you may not believe this, but if you would have ran into me about 25 years ago, none of you would have called me as your pastor here, I promise you that. It's not because of me. It's all because of him. And I want to tell you, if he can do that for me, he can do that for you too. The only thing stopping you is yourself. Listening to the lies. Listen to the voice of truth. Now these people who belong to Christ are characterized, look back in verse 14, zealous for good deeds. Eager to do good works. The emphasis is on the intensity with which Christians should pursue doing what is good. And this eager response to God is because of what he's done for us. 
Not because we can get any brownie points. We do it because simply who God is and what he's done. And that's infinitely higher than ought to or better not mentality of work salvation. Again, God's grace is powerfully active in the sanctification process of learning and doing what is good. And Jesus is the pattern that we are to follow. He showed us how it is to be done. And what a powerful, powerful model that is. And then lastly, Titus tells us in verse 15, these things speak and exhort or encourage and reprove with all authority, literally command, and let no one disregard you. Here's the point. Paul's writing this to Titus. Paul is representing, I mean, excuse me, Titus is representing Paul, the apostle. He's also representing the gospel. So what Paul is telling Titus Live your behavior in such a way that is beyond reproach. So when you start telling people how they should live and behave, you better make sure that you're living what you're preaching. That's my definition. And that's only true for him a long time ago when this letter was written, but it's true for us. Are we living the way that we claim to be living? Because let me tell you, the world is watching. Now some people will say, well, I know some Christians, so-called Christians, they live, I live better than they do. Let me tell you, if you're looking for an excuse, (laughs) people come up with excuses all the time, but in the end, when we all stand before God one day, we'll have to get an account for ourselves. I can't sit there, well, well, look at Daryl, look at Larry. No, Tim, you heard the gospel. You had every opportunity to respond, and you did nothing. There's a lot of verses that scare me but one that sobers me very quickly as I start thinking about end times. Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we do all these things, cast out demons, heal people? Jesus never denies that they did them, but he denies that he ever knew them. That means we can be so busy of going to church and doing our thing, our programs and ministry, that we lose the focus of what it's truly all about. It's about having a living relationship with our Creator through His Son, Jesus Christ, and living it out, empowered by His Holy Spirit. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. The highest and purest motivation for Christian behavior is not based on what we can do for God, but rather what God has done for us And what he will do in the future. Think about that. We we just had Christmas. We look back at all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And sometimes, maybe I'm speaking for myself, why didn't they get it? Couldn't they see that this was the Messiah? Look at all the prophecy that was there. But they missed it. But there is just as much prophecy talking about his coming again. I don't want to be guilty one day of going, I I heard it, I read it, but I just missed it. We can be sure that he's coming again. This is what was prophesied hundreds of years before he came the first time. He's coming again. That's not the question. The question is if when he comes. As Christians and followers of Christ Jesus, we should confess 
what we see written in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. We should confess this. Listen to this passage. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Except for the grace of God, so go I. Now, I know there's consequences when you break laws, laws of the land, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, I have to remind myself, I suffer the grace of God, so go I. Because we're all sinners saved by his grace. And not one of us in here, or any person that's ever lived on this earth, who ever got everything perfect, only Jesus did that. And they took him outside the city and crucified him. When we confess that, we indicate that we understand that the grace of God, look back in verse 12, is instructing us to deny godliness, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires or passions and to live sensibly, self-controlled, righteously or upright and godly in the present age. And that brings us back to where we started. The purpose of theological study, which is basically what we're doing now. Preaching is theological because we're talking about God. We want to increase our knowledge of God, which is the purpose of theological study. And the reason we want to increase our knowledge of God so that we, live God, we can live God, um, lives that are characterized by growth in obedience to his revealed will. And grace is immensely vital, essential doctrine in Christianity. It's grace that provides new day, new mercies that leads us back to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And this is what the Lord's Supper reminds us about, about the grace of God what Jesus did number one have you given your life to Christ I'm not asking if you joined a church I'm not asking you if you're serving in ministry I'm asking you do you have a relationship with Christ if you don't I'm going to invite you to come up here and I'll introduce you to him if you've done that but there's things that are in the way between you and God and Specifically, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, it tells us to examine ourselves so we can partake in a worthy manner. It goes on to warn us if we partake in an unworthy manner, we're drinking condemnation upon ourselves. We are guilty of the blood of Christ. So it's also a time to prepare our hearts and have God really search our hearts and our minds. And another thing, if, if you're looking for a church home and God's been lead, leading you here, We'd love to have you. Maybe you come down and say, yes, I want to join this local body of believers. Or you just need prayer. Whatever it is, please, I exhort you, I encourage you, take this time now and listen to the voice of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of grace. God, you're we can't even begin to describe it. 
but we praise you and thank you for it. Father, I pray with anybody within the sound of my voice needs to respond to you. Father, give them the courage and the wisdom to do so this very hour. Father, as we prepare by gathering around your table and partake of the Lord's Supper, search our hearts so that we can partake in a worthy manner. Continue to move among us. Continue to reach in and perform heart surgery on all of us so that we can become more and more like Christ.